Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Machion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hello once again, everyone. This is Brad Lewis. Welcome to Machion's Blood, Sweat, and Smears, an ongoing podcast on topics in benign hematology. Today, we're going to once again focus in on next-generation gene sequencing and the importance of gene sequencing, why you might have been doing it, and in fact, what it is, and then some of the problems that we have gene sequencing, the kinds of questions that you've been asking uh, when we report out the results of some of the gene sequencing that's been ordered. Today, to facilitate this discussion, I've asked Jamie Kane to be with us. He's director of gene sequencing research program at Machion, PhD in molecular biology and genetics, to talk about issues next gen gene sequencing and in fact how we do gene sequencing at Machion. Jamie, if maybe the first question is, who cares about any of this? Tell me a bit about why we are interested in gene sequencing. That, a question that may bounce back to me a little bit. It's a bit of a clinical question, but go ahead and start this off. Yeah, it's a good question. We certainly hear about it all the time now. So, you know, I came to Machion from academia. And so there we were, you know, we use gene sequencing just all the time. So it's really just one of the biggest tools you have as a researcher, no matter whether you're working on bacteria or, you know, all the way up to humans, or if it's very basic science or, you know, more applied, you're just always going to need to sequence. Sequencing has been around for many decades now. Sort of the method we think of right before next-gen sequencing was Sanger sequencing, which is still around today and still very important. So Sanger sequencing has been around. It's sort of a gold standard. It's limited in that it's just in its scope. Like you kind of go 500 base pairs at a time, roughly, with Sanger sequencing. So that would take quite a long time to sequence a whole genome. But if you're doing molecular cloning in the lab, Sanger sequencing is really great. Yeah, what are the advantages of Sanger sequencing? It's around in academia for a while. You know, basically you amplify the DNA that you're interested in. And again, you're kind of limited to hundreds of base pairs. And so you have to either use PCR to amplify that. And this is sort of the booster signal or to just target what you're going after from the background of the whole genome of your organism. So you either have to use PCR to target that piece of DNA, or you have to clone it into a plasmid and clone it by propagating it in E. coli or something like that, and then isolate that plasmid and sequence it. And then, you know, you classically, you'd be running this on a, a gel. It's radioactive. You get this nice pattern that you read off, get the bases that then switched to capillary tubes. And it became an automated instrument with the capillary electrophoresis and using fluorescent dyes instead of radioactivity. So that's, I guess in the eighties, you know, I was just a kid at that time, but I believe that was in the mid eighties when that switchover happened. Human genome project started in the nineties. It, it took a decade to sequence the human genome. I think it cost about a billion dollars. And so they were actually doing it the old fashioned way of Sanger sequencing, just sort of, it was a worldwide effort with many labs involved because this would be so, so slow. And during that, Craig Venter, I guess, split off and formed his own private company to try to do a more efficient way of sequencing. So that's when next-gen sequencing was born. And this is basically, you could think of it conceptually, it is like Sanger, except that it's massively parallel. 
clonally, you still have to use PCR or, or clone it, you gotta boost that signal. But the difference here with the next-gen sequencing versus Sanger is, again, it's just massively parallel. So with the next-gen sequencing approach, you basically take the human genome, you fragment it either enzymatically or you, know, you sonicate it. So it's just broken up into tons of pieces. You're sort of indifferent as to which pieces get sequenced at any particular time because you're just going to sequence it all. And then it becomes a, a big, giant computational problem of reassembling all those pieces. So basically, you get all those pieces, and you have to assemble it back into the original puzzle. If yeah. I could get you to take a step back for just a moment, for those of us who are still a little bit confused by this whole new topic. So you extracted the you can extract it from anything, any kind of sample, yeah. a paraffin-embedded sample. Out of curiosity, we wouldn't do that, but yeah. you were going to yep. do DNA. Yeah, basically, as we all know, every living organism has DNA. So from plants to animals to bacteria, even the technically non-living you know, viruses are going to have RNA or DNA. So all of that can be extracted and sequenced. And then, right, for uh, switching clinically to think about the human, um, any, you know, really any cell type you could pretty much use and extract DNA and sequence it. Uh, some are just easier. Like we most frequently use just whole blood. You know, it's an easily accessible sample and get a lot of uh, good DNA out of it. It makes it very easy. But, you know, we can use a uh, buccal swab. We can use, and again, so, you know, here at Meichion, we, we almost exclusively do germline or constitutional uh, sequencing. So this is looking for uh, DNA variants that you inherited from mom or dad, but you could look like in the context of cancer. So now you're looking for mutations that are at a much lower frequency, or if you're sequencing the blood, they're, they're going to be very rare. But if you, if you had the tumor sample, as you mentioned, uh, you could sequence that, and then you'd be sequencing tumor DNA, which will look similar to the patient, but it's going to have many alterations to it. Yeah, you mentioned that we mostly look at germline samples. Now, if we we're looking at a blood sample, we'd be looking for a germline sample. If this was a patient who just had a bone marrow transplant, we might actually go to the buccal swab to get a germline sample from the patient instead of getting the germline sample from the, the donor who's producing much of the blood that that patient had. You, you mentioned earlier um, that we then break it up into fragments. Go back to that just for a second. So how big are those fragments? And are there advantages to having bigger fragments versus smaller fragments? Yeah, um, it varies depending on the technology you're using and your application. So they could be quite small. Like I think in you know those very early days, they were very small, like 30 to 50 base pairs were these fragments. Uh, now I think typically it's, it's bigger than that. Uh, we, you know, we usually work around, I guess, most frequently maybe around 200 base pair fragments. So now there are many different platforms, many different methods. So you can really kind of tweak it a bit that size and there's there are trade-offs so you know the smaller it is it's sort of uh, cheaper and easier you get really high read depth but then the trade-off is they become harder to map back to the original reference genome so you make your libraries by clonally amplifying um, and then you sequence all of those uh, in parallel and then you get all this sequence data and you have to map that back to the reference genome so you know whether or not there's a variant present so we have this nice human reference genome and you've got your 50 base pair fragment or maybe it's 200 base pairs and you're trying to see you know where does it fit where what's the match and if it's small there actually might be multiple exact matches because there are a lot of homologous regions uh, in the within the human genome 
um, you know, a lot of genes arose from basically gene duplication um, throughout evolution and then divergence from there, but they still have a lot of homology. So the larger your fragment, the more likely you can map it unambiguously back to the human genome and then really know what it is. Also, there's uh, certain variants. So oftentimes when we're talking about, uh, and again, I've mentioned this in a past podcast, but there's sometimes terminology gets confusing, but there's variants, mutations, polymorphisms. They sometimes get used totally uh, interchangeably. And then sometimes they have kind of their own little uh, nuanced meaning, but probably sort of use them totally interchangeably today. But basically when we talk about variants, we typically, the first thing that pops into mind is just a single base being changed. And of course that can cause an amino acid to change, which can you know, totally alter the function of a protein and you know, totally cause disease, this single uh, variant. Um, but a lot of variants are actually much larger than a single variant. And so if that variant is 50 base pairs in size or you know, 75 base pairs in size, then your 50 base pair sequencing read might not capture it, might not be useful. So larger chunks of sequencing reads can capture more um, diverse types of variants. So then after you break it up into those fragments, what do you attach to it to make it something you can work with? What kind of planking adapters do you use? Yeah, you know, this all depends on what your particular platform and method is and your you know application, that kind of stuff. But right, typically you do need chopping up your genome you're adding some adapters that help you amplify it and also help. That's where you probably start sequencing from. But yeah, we probably don't need to dive into those details too much. But um, it does okay. bring up, you do need those adapters as a kind of a starting point usually because most of the sequencing techniques, including Sanger and next-gen sequencing, most next-gen sequencing is done by sequencing by synthesis. So you're actually, you know, in your chemistry mix mixture, you have purified DNA polymerase, so it's the enzyme that, that naturally synthesizes DNA. And so that's going to attach to your DNA of interest and just do its normal, what it thinks is its normal function of just reading the template strand and synthesizing a new strand by using the complementary bases. And so that's usually what we're, we're measuring somehow. And there's, again, different ways to measure that depending on the particular platform. You might be using um, fluorescently modified Bases, so you can just optic, you know, take pictures of a fancy camera and, and visualize it that way. Or you might be measuring proton release. You know, each time it adds a base, a proton gets released. So you can kind of capture that data as well. And there are there are other ways too. And, and it's not always sequencing by synthesis, but usually there's another method called sequencing by ligation. But I think we won't talk about that now. So you talk about sequencing by synthesis. You take these fragments that you had of the of the DNA, and then one by one you add a base on that's a complementary base and you just base as you're adding it on so you know what you've added on in sequence? Yeah, that's, um, again, they're kind of different ways. So if you're doing that method where you're measuring proton release, which you can kind of all four, you know, A, T, C, G there, they're all gonna release a proton. So you actually, just by measuring a proton, you actually can't tell what base was added. But if your device knows which, if, if you flow one base at a time, then you, you can infer what happens. So like you flow A's, you see no proton, you flow T's, suddenly you see a, a you know, proton release, then you can infer a T was added to the chain. And therefore, actually the, the original strand must have had an A since they're complementary. So one of the 
we talked about, I think, a little bit early on, is you sometimes have targeted sequencing of the genome. When you say you're doing targeted sequencing, so you've taken the entire genome, you've up into these little pieces, you have it all in that tube. How do you pick out the targets for your targeting that you're going to do in your genome? If we're only going to look at atypical AS genes, we're going to look at complement factor H and I and C3 and whatnot, how do you select for those? So yeah, there's 20,000 genes in the human genome and you could sequence them all. But right, if you're interested in a disease like atypical HUS, there's really only maybe 20 genes that are clinically relevant. So it's a bit overkill just in terms of the cost and turnaround time to do whole genome sequencing. So you'd want to do a targeted approach and just, you know, how do I sequence just those 20 genes of interest and ignore the rest? So there's two main methods. You could either use PCR. So since we know, because we have the human reference genome, we know the sequence of those 20 genes and we can design primers to amplify those 20 genes and then just sequence those. Or similarly, the other way is a hybridization approach where you basically, it's very similar, but you have an oligo that is complementary to the genes of interest and they, you know, they act as like bait that once you've fragmented your patient's DNA in the test tube, they will bind to these baits and you can extract them that way. But then again, you PCR amplify those. So there's always, in these next-gen sequencing techniques, you always have actually PCR involved at some point to, to amplify your material. That's just to boost your signal, basically. So you, you get all those pieces of DNA with whatever they have on their end to start the next step. And then once you're going to look at, add the bases to them to see what their sequence was. And then what? So I'm trying to go through this sequentially. So we've gone through, we've picked up our fragments, we've put on our flanking adapters, we've done some target enrichment, and now we have the stuff we want. And then what I was trying to get at is, do you enrich for the target or don't enrich if it's going to be hold the genome, I suppose? Then what do you do next as you begin to try to process this DNA? Yeah, so regardless of whether you're doing whole genome or whole exome or much more targeted, and, and whole exome is a type of targeted because it's targeting the you know thousands of genes, um, or you might be targeting tens or hundreds. Um, so you, either way, you have to, you clonally amplify there. And, you know, basically, again, the clonal amplification there is to boost the signal of what you're trying to sequence. If you're trying to sequence a signal, a single molecule, so you could have just a single molecule of DNA with a single DNA polymerase on it. And that's going to, you know, do its sequencing by synthesis, but it's just going to be, it's just going to become noise. So what instead you want is thousands of molecules all clustered together and they're all clonal. So it's that the exon one of CFH gene that you've amplified in this little spot on your chip. And then there's a you know a little spot that's physically separated from that first spot that has a different exon and which spot is what is kind of random. But basically all these little clusters, clonal clusters that each represent a single DNA starting point that was then clonally amplified. And the way that boosts your signal is now you have thousands of molecules that are all identical, that are all in register. So when the synthesis starts, you get thousands of signal coming from that spot instead of just one molecule signal. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense. And this also actually gets to why you start to hit a limit into the read length, because as you start sequencing by synthesis, base pair after base pair after base pair in these clonal clusters, or on these, you know, sometimes they're on a chip, sometimes uh, or flow cell, sometimes they're on a, a sphere, 
there's different ways to kind of physically isolate them and clone them depending on the method. But basically, as you go along, eventually some of those molecules fall one base pair behind, you know, they fall out of register. And so, you know, and that gets worse and worse as you go along. So typically your, your signal eventually becomes noisy because of that. So you sequence, you gather your data, and then, you know, there's a lot of like filtering and QC checks, et cetera. But eventually you've got a DNA sequence that you then now comes to big computer part because you have to map this back to the human reference genome. And this is often presented metaphorically as imagine a public library, all those books in there, you take them all, you put them through a, a shredder, and then you try to reassemble the library's collection by just reading the little shredded pieces of paper. And so you can imagine what a challenge that is, first off. Then second off, because the human genome's not as clearly written as a book, there's all these additional problems where sometimes you just have paragraphs that just keep repeating. Sometimes you have a page from one book just randomly inserted into another book. So you have all these kind of just idiosyncrasies of evolution and DNA that make this a little bit more complicated. But you know, we, it, it works and you eventually align it to the human genome and then if it aligns perfectly, like every base matches, then you'd say, I guess there's no variance relative to the human genome, the reference, which there are kind of nuances actually to the reference genome, because you can ask this question, what does it mean to have a reference genome anyways? But if there is a difference, then you'd say that's a variant. And then you have to ask the follow-up question is, are we sure this is a true variant or is this possibly false positive? And so that's, you know, just sort of a, you have to go through the, the technical aspect of that. And then once you're convinced it's a real variant, then you have to ask, well, what does it mean for my patient? Yeah, that, that always seems to be the, the place where things, you know, the rubber hits the road, where for a clinician, it really gets to be confusing. So you've got these variants. When do they matter and when they when when don't they? There are guidelines that are out there to help decide about those things. I think that there have been some problems with consensus and some of those guidelines still, but there are some guidelines. So how do you decide when a variant is meaningful and when it's problematic. Yeah, that's the big challenge. Originally, there were many labs trying to interpret variants and write up reports. And then yeah, everybody recognized there'd be value if we could sort of unify how variants are classified. There's been a couple versions of this, but basically the organizations AMP and ACMG have issued joint recommendations. I think the latest version was probably published in 2015. I believe they're currently working on a new version that's coming out soon. They have clearly spelled out guidelines about how to classify a variant, and they have five buckets. There's pathogenic, likely pathogenic, a variant of unknown significance, likely benign, and benign. Have that common rubric for all labs to use and, and hopefully help clinicians understand what a variant might mean. So when you do find a variant or find some variation in the genome, how do you then decide whether that particular variant is pathogenic or not pathogenic? Again, this, yeah, it is pretty, it can be quite difficult. So here, uh, oftentimes you need sort of a PhD level scientist to really be able to interpret a variant. And, and well, there's two things you can do. You can kind of look at certain bioinformatic uh, predictions, and then you also turn to the literature. So if you're lucky, the variant's been seen before by other labs. And if you're really lucky, there's even a sort of molecular, um, experimental work to really validate the, the predictions. But, you know, so hopefully they've, they've made a recombinant protein to show that, sure enough, the enzymatic, enzymatic activity is affected. That would be great. But that's pretty rare. So most times you're not that lucky. 
a lot of times it's just there's there's maybe nothing published or it's very much just an association like here was a disease cohort in the variant was seen and while it's extremely rare or absent in controls that's kind of what what's more common you know that's just association so it's hard to you can't know that it causes it there are some other bioinformatics scores you can get there's these algorithms to try to predict if you get a dna change you can easily predict how that will affect the amino acid or not but then whether that affects protein function or not is a much more difficult question but you can kind of at least get some sense by looking at what the algorithms do basically is they look at the protein and all those amino acids and they compare it to homologs and other organisms and they just try to look at which amino acids are highly conserved across evolution and the more conservation there is the more likely that's a really important amino acid if it's a highly conserved amino acid then changing it is more likely to be damaging to protein and also the type of change because if the original amino acid is positively charged and it's mutated into another positively charged amino acid then that change might be tolerated likewise if the positively charged amino acid is mutated into a negatively charged amino acid that's much more likely to be damaging also uh, cysteine residues the cysteine amino acid that one's highly likely to be damaging when mutated and, and this is captured in all these bioinformatic prediction programs because they're so they're so often used to make these disulfide bridges, which are important for the protein structure. Mm -hmm. And of course, you might get um, a nonsense mutation or frame shift mutation, which you know would be predicted to really dramatically alter the the whole you know not just one amino acid, but really the whole protein. And so those are much more easily to predict to be damaging. How well do those prediction programs work? I would say that they're not really that useful at the individual patient level because the sensitivity and specificity are both not ideal, but they're good research tools. So if you have a, if you're sequencing a bunch of patients and you're getting a bunch of variants and you want a way to sort of prioritize them or just talk about them in aggregate compared to controls, then they're pretty good. What we're really missing is some way to rapidly validate a variant of unknown significance in the lab. Like, you know, really we want to see it, see the variant in the patient, then somehow be able to very quickly and cheaply make that recombinant protein and have some functional assay to show there is a defect. And that, that part is very difficult. It's time consuming, it's laborious, it's costly. But it would be ideal. That would be ideal. So in its absence, we, we do things like looking at the population studies, looking to see if this mutation has ever been associated with the disease before. How well does that work out? Yeah, so that's what we're left with using. I don't know, it could, it could be quite a challenge, especially for, you know, we're, we often deal with these ultra rare diseases. So that becomes very challenging because I think it's very hard to, you know, when something's ultra rare, it's, you know, it's very hard to say what it means. Yeah. Especially with things like AHUS, where it's not only ultra rare, so it's not going to occur often, mutations won't occur often in the population, but the penetrance can be very low. So the mutation may be out there, the variant may be out there and seeming, seemingly occurring in perfectly normal people who actually have the disease and are passing it on to someone else in their, in their line who will come down with, with the disease or themselves. Maybe they come down with the disease, but only much, much later in life. So it doesn't show up in the original data that we had. Yeah, that's a very good point about the partial penetrance really makes things difficult here for, for some of these complex diseases. Yeah, something like hemophilia, which is much more common and much more penetrant. You know, I, I think that population data is useful for saying something's benign, 
if you saw a variant in your patient, but then you have a bunch of healthy people who have that variant, then I think you're pretty safe saying that's a likely benign variant because there's so many healthy people who have it. And we know that something like hemophilia, those mutations tend to be very penetrant. So, so that part's straightforward, but right with these other partially penetrant ultra rare diseases, our patient might have a, a very rare variant and it's been seen before in someone who's healthy, but we can't actually conclude that it's benign because of that partial penetrance problem. But maybe that other person in the database has this you know, pathogenic mutation, but they just never manifested disease. So it's very difficult in those cases. One of the things that often comes up when I'm discussing reports with clinicians is that early on, we thought a particular mutation was pathogenic. It was very uncommon in the general population. And perhaps there was even, you know, there were case reports where a patient had the disease and it seems to have been associated with a particular variant. And then we come back later and say, actually, we have more ethnically diverse data now. And it appears that this mutation is extremely common in some ethnic populations, making it unlikely to actually be the cause of an ultra rare disease like AHUS or HLH, for example. That's right. So that was the, yeah, the earliest big database was the thousand genomes database, you know, a thousand genomes sounds like a lot, but yeah, it's not really when, you know, a lot of these variants you're interested in are at that frequency of one in a thousand or less. So aren't really represented. And even today, the databases are, are most skewed towards European ancestry. So that's right. A lot of those early publications thought they saw an association, but really it was just that they didn't have a good population database. So right. Something that's rare in Europeans could be very common in, in some African population and vice versa. And so today it's getting much better. So we do have databases with hundreds of thousands of, of people and of much more diverse ethnic backgrounds. Um, and it's improving. So that's good. And I did kind of touch on this a little bit about the human reference genome. So that original human reference genome was, it's like a composite of 20 individuals or something. And I think they're maybe all European and maybe like one person from Buffalo, New York or something accounts for like a huge chunk of it. It is a human reference genome, but it's a composite of just a few individuals. You know, they're constantly, they are constantly updating the human reference genome. So originally, there's a draft genome in 2001, declared complete in 2003, I believe, but it was really only 85% complete because that remaining 15% was very hard to sequence DNA. And then over the years, they've tried to like fill in the missing gaps, but then also try to get more diversity into the genome. You know, I talked about how you take your sequencing data and then you try to map it back to the human genome. Well, sometimes you get D DNA that looks like really high quality DNA and it doesn't map to anything. And so we just throw that out because there's nothing else we can do with it but maybe that's contaminating DNA from bacteria or something. But you know, what that is, is it's human DNA that just wasn't represented in the human reference genome. There's a very interesting study I saw, I think in 2019, where they sequenced 900 people from Africa and they, you know, they aligned the, all that to the human genome. But then instead of throwing away that unmappable DNA, they tried to assemble that and basically they concluded the human reference genome of a pan-African genome based on these 900 individuals would be 10% larger than the current human reference genome. So there's all this DNA that we're just throwing out just because our human reference genome wasn't diverse enough. So we're getting better at that sort of stuff. And, that, and actually even just, just a month ago, we finally have our kind of this paper that has basically they sequenced from telomere to telomere, so from end to end. So they did get a complete human reference genome Sort of. It 
I never know how to pronounce this word. It's one that I only read, but maybe you know it, Brad. But it's a hydatidiform cyst. Yeah. So um, they sequence that because it still has all the chromosomes mm -hmm. um, and you know it's still diploid, but it's homozygous. So it made it much easier to work with. So they're able to get a complete genome of that. It's basically a human reference genome, but you know it's not actually like based on a person. So we're still making all these interesting advancements on on what we can do. And so you know a big breakthrough there was actually getting these very long reads uh, to, to get through these tough parts. And you know whether that's clinically meaningful anyways is actually an open question too. Those, those hard to sequence regions. Uh, I can't remember now the original question. I, I think I no, I think you answered the question precisely. I was okay. just great <laughs> wondering more about what you used for a reference genome. I think we've kind of went through the whole sequence that people ask about with what is next gen sequencing. We get our DNA, we purify the DNA. After we purify DNA, we break it up into, into fragments and then select out the fragments we want, mark those fragments in one way or another so we can use them, and then begin to clonally amplify them on, on the surface of something so that we can get a lot of copies of that one so that we can begin to, to look at it and then go through the process of adding bases to in a complicated way to come up with the sequence of that base pair and then try to figure out what in God's name it means now that we have that genome mapped, or at least those pieces of the genome that we're, we were interested in are now mapped out, go back to the human genome. And you would think it would be easy, but as we've learned, it's not as easy as you might think. And not only are there lots of variants where we just don't know, they're too rare, we don't have any information, we get variants where we think we do know, that we think they're positive. And then as we get more information, it turns out that actually they're common in some populations, or we figured they must be negative. They were in a synonymous mutations. We, we, we think they shouldn't matter. And it turns out they do matter in some way in terms of the handling of, of the DNA or RNA. So it, it gets up, gets to be more interesting. Maybe lastly, what other problems come up? So you come in, we do our next gen sequencing, we get an answer. What kinds of things then throw you for a loop that might send you off to looking at some other way of sequencing this DNA? And, and actually, as you were laying out that whole workflow, you know, I was basically thinking, yeah, the, the devil's in the details here, really, at every step along the way. So when things go well and you get this really well-characterized variant at the end, that's great. That's clear. But then when, when you don't get that answer at the end, there's all these things that, you know, maybe the patient really doesn't have anything. But then there are all these, you know, little nuances that could be at play here. Uh, so some of those, we talked about this a little bit, but there are different types of variants. This technology is very good at picking up single nucleotide variants, you know, just one base pair affected. But then it, it really differs all those other kind of variants. So there's all these indels of various, so insertions and deletions of various sizes. You know, the bigger those get, the harder they can be to, de to detect. There's also inversions and chromosomes can swap pieces. Um, so a lot of those things can be very difficult you know, you can imagine because you're reading, you're doing these short reads, if you happen to get that breakpoint, you're just going to miss these. And, and some of these breakpoints you, you can't even pick up if you're doing, if you imagine you're doing PCR to do targeted sequencing, your PCR would fail if it happened to be trying to, you know, it's not going to be able to pick up a, a fusion of two chromosomes unless it's a common fusion that you're specifically targeting. You know, if it's something novel, you'll miss that. So. Those things are, are very difficult. That is one advantage of whole genome sequencing because typically it, it actually does have that resolution to pick up 
sort of these novel, large structural changes. Although again, whole genome is just so expensive and slow right now that it's not really practical again right now to do that for, for your typical patient. You know, we talked about read length can lead to mapping issues. Uh, they're oftentimes homologous genes. So if you have, if, if your sequencing bit is piece of data there is too small to unambiguously map back to one gene, then you're, you can be, that can cause confusion. Um, there's a lot of genomic regions that are difficult to sequence. And then that's usually because of low complexity of the, of the sequence. If it's just AT, 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 AT over and over and over again for a long stretch, that's very hard to sequence. Fortunately, the low complexity sequences happen more in intronic regions or just, you know, in between genes, the regions of the genome that we tend to ignore anyways, and seem most of the time are probably clinically not relevant. So typically when you're doing targeted sequencing or whole exome, you're usually just focusing on the exons of a gene, the parts that code for protein. One, they're easier to sequence, and two, they're much easier to interpret. And uh, it does seem like most clinically relevant mutations fall in those regions. Some mutations in the intronic yep. regions turned out to be pathogenic. Yes, absolutely. For sure, there are we are missing pathogenic mutations that are just outside of the exons that are just, they're very rare. So it's hard, it's hard to design a, a sequencing panel that's you know really useful, right? If, it's, if there's like one patient out there that just has this novel deep intronic variant, um, you know, what, what's the likelihood that you're going to get that patient and then you would have sequenced that variant and then know how to interpret it. So it, it's a real challenge. So all these next-gen sequencing methods pretty much use PCR to amplify that clonally amplify, and you can get PCR bias that way. So certain sequences of DNA are just intrinsically easier to, to PCR amplify. And so you can just, you'll get bias that way. You can also get allele dropout. So, you know, we have two chromosomes, so two copies of every gene, um, but one might have the bad luck of having a variant right where the PCR primer is going to bind. And so that allele drops out and you're only amplifying from the other chromosome, but you can't actually, it's not easy to tell that that happened in your final data. You, you sort of design your primers to avoid any common variants. So you try to minimize the chance that this is happening, but you can never rule it out. Other things, if you're doing, we mostly do germline or constitutional uh, diseases. So that makes things easier for us because actually you'd expect a variant to be present in 50% of your sequencing reads or 100% if it's homozygous, you know, 50% heterozygous. But if you're after low frequency variants, like 1% of the data or less, this would be you know, like a cancer application, especially if you're doing like liquid biopsy. So this is becoming very popular now. You know, that's just a, a difficult signal to catch, you can imagine. It can be difficult to distinguish that from, from just noise, just from a random, because you do get sequencing errors that pop up and usually just look like a random base. But because we sequence, when we do germline, we're sequencing very deep. So you might have 200 data points or more for, for, for a particular position on the chromosome or a particular base. And if there's a, just a single blip there, a single A, but everything else says C, assume that A was noise. But if you're interested in the cancer application, you know, you're worried that, oh, well, maybe that is, you know, one of these driver mutations that's here at, and, you know, you expect it to be low frequency. So that, that's a challenge. Those are mostly technical challenges I was talking about, but then you know, we talked about this, like interpretation is very difficult. You just need someone who's highly trained to, to be able to interpret the technical data, but then also interpret the literature, read all that literature, understand it, and then try to synthesize that into like a very concise, uh, readable paragraph for a clinician who's very short on time and has a very complex diagnosis to make. These are all the 
the nuances, I guess. So just take a step back in, in the difficulty in interpreting this. So if, if we get a, if we if we are gene sequencing for somebody who has a disease where we know that seeing inversions of the DNA sequence occasionally or seeing large deletions of the DNA are going to cause problems, then you could turn to other ways of sequencing the DNA. What kinds That's of right. things do you turn to, and what are the other problems besides the, those two obvious ones that might make you want to turn to an alternative way of sequencing the DNA? That's right. There are um, there's there are often cases where there's a well characterized mutation that you know pops up in many patients that structural variant like let's take hemophilia for an example we know that there's this big inversion that happens in factor eight that actually accounts for a large proportion of severe uh, hemophiliacs so it's this large piece of dna that just flips and the reason it does that is because those breakpoints are homologous to each other so it just intrinsically unstable and just flips back and forth at some low frequency. And, but because of that homology, it's very difficult to, you basically can't use next-gen sequencing to sequence that. But there are kind of PCR assays you can design specifically for this inversion that will catch it. You run it on a gel and people who have inversion, the, the size of that band is differently sized than, than wild type. So if somebody orders a hemophilia you know, sequencing panel, we can easily run that PCR alongside of it to, to rule that out. So there are lots of cases like that. Now, the problem is when there's novel inversions, those will be very difficult to catch. You might have to use basically some kind of long read sequence to try to get that or whole genome sequence. And neither one of those is really ready for clinical use right now. They're just, um, you know, they have all these other drawbacks to them. But there are some other techniques that are worth talking about that are very good clinically. So kind of talked about large insertions or large deletions. So these are also called copy number variants. It's basically just a big piece of DNA that's duplicated either once or more or deleted. Again, NGS can sort of sometimes see this, but it's not really that optimal for this sort of thing. You really want to use something like, you know, basically what a lot of people are using now, what we use is MLPA, this multiplex ligation dependent probe amplification. And so essentially it just has a bunch of probe binding sites throughout a gene. And it's, it's just much more quantitative. It's doing quantitation at those different data points. So you can see, do you get a rise or a drop? And that would correspond to an insertion or a, a, a duplication or a deletion. Uh, so that can be very a very useful technique to pair with NGS. And question of, you know, how often do those come up? And so that's kind of still being figured out, but it also seems to depend on the particular disease. But these kind of structural variants or copy number variants, you know, they might make up anywhere from three to 10% of of cases, um, depending on the particular disease. So wow. that can be quite a, a nice tool to, to order, especially if you're, maybe you start with the targeted sequencing panel and that comes back negative. You're still very suspicious that there's a pathogenic variant there that's being missed. So then you might want to turn to MLPA or something like it. At the very beginning, we talked, I think we forgot to, you still use Sanger actually. Basically it's all a question of how much are you looking at? So if you just want to know like a single, if it's factor five Leiden, right? That's just a very specific single nucleotide change. You can just detect that with Sanger or, or real-time PCR. And that's very cheap and fast and, and highly accurate. So you'd use that when you're going after just one kind of location. There's no like real rule about when you switch to next-gen sequencing, but you know, roughly, you know, rule of thumb, I guess maybe if it's larger than a gene, a single gene, you're probably going to switch over to um, next-gen sequencing. Or if you're if for some reason you have 
many samples. Next-gen sequencing is very good at multiplexing. So you can kind of give each, each patient their own barcode and kind of just sequence them all together. So even if you were just doing a couple of targets, and you might normally do Sanger, but if you had tens or 100 patients or whatever that you're going to run at the same time, it might be very cost-effective to just pool them together and do next-gen sequencing. And a lot of times you use them, you know, Sanger is also good for, sometimes you might get a variant in next-gen sequencing that you're a little bit unsure of whether it's real or an artifact. Sanger can be used to quickly verify it as an orthogonal method. And Sanger is also useful if you, maybe you identify a pathogenic variant in your patient, and now the family wants to do familial testing, it'd be much more efficient to do Sanger just for that one variant rather than a next-gen sequencing panel on the whole family. Got it. Great. So I think that makes some sense out of what next-gen sequencing is. Any thoughts you wanted to talk about briefly about the future? I've heard you talk about yeah. cell sequencing and DNA sequencing and microbial sequencing, although we're probably not, we're certainly not doing that now and doesn't look like it's in our near future, but any other thoughts? Yeah, the big thing that's missing we talked about is just how to experimentally validate a, a variant of unknown significance. I would like to see that solved in the future. I'm not, I don't really have, I don't know how that's gonna get solved, but I think everyone recognizes that's a big limitation. But then, yeah, there's all these other things you can do. There's RNA sequencing, which you haven't talked about. There's cell-free DNA sequencing. You can also sequence for modifications of DNA. So DNA gets modified, uh, you know, gets methylated and can be very relevant to how a gene is expressed or not. And so you can actually detect that with sequencing. So these are all kinds of things that are kind of newer than just the classic DNA sequencing uh, and are starting to come to the clinic. Talked about the, the cost of whole genome sequencing and the turnaround time. So it took, you know, that very first time it took a decade and cost a billion dollars. Uh, now you can do it in a day and, you know, it can also be less than a thousand dollars. So it's a really incredible advance. We talk about long read sequencing. So that is very intriguing because it can kind of catch all these types of variants that we're missing. But it's actually, because it's single molecule, it's actually has a lot of, has a high error rate because, you know, the whole point of doing clonal amplification is to boost your signal to noise ratio. And so the single molecule sequencing doesn't have that. So it's very error prone, but you get a nice, extremely long read. It'll be very interesting to see how that gets incorporated into the clinic in the future. And actually, the, so there's a couple of different platforms for um, long reads, but one of them is this Nanopore, the, um, what is it called? Oxford Nanopore. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's really interesting because it's this tiny sequencer. It's smaller than your cell phone plugs into a laptop using a USB drive. And you know, it's, it's, it's actually cheap. So you know, this one you can actually take into the field and they've actually done this to go sequence uh, Ebola out, out in the jungles because it's, you, know, it can, you can really put it onto a mobile lab. So those, those things are very interesting. Yeah, I guess those are the things I'm thinking about for what, what's coming in the future. Also just better, better population databases, better um, reference genomes, like a, a diversity of reference genomes. We don't, need, we don't really need to have only one reference genome, right? We could have as many as we want. All right. Well, on that note, Jamie, thank you very much for clarifying something that I have to say. I've always, I still find just a bit overwhelming. And well, you know, I find it overwhelming too. I, you know, I have a PhD in molecular biology. I was reading these papers all the time, but I've never done it myself. And so when Mechon asked me to get involved, I, I, I felt quite overwhelmed as well. So it, it's a very natural feeling. And I'm overwhelmed I, trying to explain it to people too. Although this, your explanation was, was superb, maybe because you've been through that feeling of being overwhelmed so that it's caused you to think it through a bit more. But this, I thought this was a great, a great discussion of engineers. 
for you, the audience, thank you very much for joining us once again on Nichion's Blood, Sweat, Smears for an interview with Jamie Kane. Um, and I look forward to seeing you again sometime in the near future. Thank you. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Mecheon Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to bloodsweatandsmears at mecheondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Mecheon at Twitter at MecheonDX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.